And I'm Burton Cody. And this is our final episode of the year 2013. Yep, and we're capping it off with uh, our top horror picks of the last 14 years. That's right. From the year 2000 to the end of this year, everything is eligible. I mean, unless it comes out uh, on the 31st of yeah. uh, December 2013, because we wouldn't it's, have seen it. And it's awesome. So, and This is, of course, a subjective list just like our action lists absolutely absolutely and you know i i have a series of um honorable mentions that i'll definitely get to after the countdown of course like i kind of wish these were like top 20s but maybe those will be blog posts in the future and uh as always we are not aware of what is on the others list it is a mystery it is a mystery so we may end up with the same movies or we may end up with a unique batch of 20 films but what's important is they're all good, and they're all scary, and they're all here. Mm-hmm. So let's so, get to it, yeah. Yeah, well, I, last, last, uh, last time I let you go first, because, you know, I, I consider you the action man. Uh, as, you, as you said in the Troll Hunter episode, I'm kind of a resident monster man, so I'll, uh, I'll go first this time. All right, monster man. All right, well, believe it or not, my uh, first pick, number 10, is the direct-to-video sequel... <clears throat> Curse of Chucky, uh, which is helmed again by the writer of every installment of the series, Don Mancini. Mm. Uh, I'm actually kind of surprised by how good this ended up. I the the last installment, Seed of Chucky, became such a self parody that I really uh, lowered my expectations, and then this movie exceeded those lowered expectations and then some. Uh, it's a very very fine installment. In fact, I would I would even venture to say it would be a fine conclusion to the series if there were no more. I um, absolutely agree. I think there's a really great performance from uh, Brad Dorif, who's the, who plays the voice of Chucky. Uh, always great. And I also enjoyed his daughter, uh, Fiona Dorif, in her, at least to me, film debut uh, as the wheelchair-bound uh, survivor girl who confronts the doll this time. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of great uh, fanfare. A lot mm. of, a lot of fan service uh, that goes into it. I, when I when I first saw the trailers for this, I was a little worried by the uh, appearance of the doll, because initially Chucky looks very he looks very different than usual. Like he, he does, yeah. It, it's I mean it you know if you're if you've gotten used to the scarred Chucky from Bride and Beyond, which uh, to be honest, I've never really been a fan of that design. Uh, I think I think it was a good one-off, but then seeing him that way and everything and all the merchandise, I never really cared for it. But this is this is, seems back to the more traditional, but it also seems enhanced. Like he's his eyes are a bit larger now. He looks more like a Bratz doll, if anything. It's it's very it's a very androgynous appearance, and I sort of wondered if uh, if Mancini was writing out you know the the, the fourth and fifth movies. And there's a there's a pretty stellar twist uh, midway through the movie that reveals no no this is all the all the continuity has happened except for presumably Chucky having a kid in the in the uh, fifth one. Yeah, I thought it was practically a reboot. But, it, uh... it it was practically a reboot, but it didn't forget any of the stuff that had come before it, and uh, blatantly so. I mean, we have we have some shout outs to. Um, Bride of Chucky. Uh, we have actually, you know, I don't even want to spoil all the cameos, but there's, there's the cameos are plentiful. The references to the other films are plentiful, and I, and I think that, 
I think with this movie, Mancini brings it all back around and has just a very interesting way of of capping capping off the series if that's what he wanted to do. Um, I'm also appreciative that we got this instead of a reboot, which I know is something Universal had been circling around. Like they wanted to do like a full on reboot, you know, mm-hmm. a, like back to the start sort of thing. Whereas uh, I, if if I have to get more child's play movies, I prefer it to do it. I prefer to do it this way with Mancini uh, guiding its future. Yeah, uh, this movie it ends as perfectly as uh, a child's play movie should end. I'll just and say defi- that. And definitely stick around for the post-credit sequence. Oh yeah, totally. Um. So yeah, I guess moving on. Yeah. My number ten pick is a Spanish horror film done in the found footage style, and that's Wreck or Record. Uh, it's a found footage zombie picture about a woman who's a she's a TV host, and she and her cameraman are doing a little piece about firemen in Spain, and so they just sort of fire uh, uh, follow some firemen around one night, and they go into a, a tenement building, and there's a lot of strange going on, and we're sort of led around this. The movie is essentially one big giant haunted house scare movie, and it's probably the best, well, in my opinion, I, I think it's the best found footage horror picture. I haven't seen every single found footage horror movie, but this is my personal favorite currently. Um, I think it's extremely well paced. Like, there's there's some good scares about 15 minutes in, and then the movie does slow slow down, and we kind of go up, the, we follow the cameraman, or the, the, uh, the woman up the stairs, and we sort of get to know different tenants in the building. They're all saying stuff that's going on, and it just sort of, and then it keeps building and building until, uh, like the last half hour to twenty minutes of this movie is just nonstop thrills. It's just fantastic, um, and it even and it ends just perfectly for this type of movie. I don't want to give it away. There was a remake made about a year or two later called Quarantine. It, even though it has one of my my favorite actresses currently, uh, Jennifer Carpenter, starring in it. Um, it's a shot-for-shot remake, so you're fine, perfectly fine skipping it and just sticking with the Spanish classic. Mm-hmm. So absolutely go with Wreck. There's not a whole lot of story to it. There's nothing quite unique about, you know, learning about a zombie infection. It's just the execution with this movie is just so spot on. Um, absolutely, absolutely thrilling. So it's uh, definitely one it of the most claustrophobic zombie movies I can think of. I mean, or found, fo- you know, not just found footage, but just zombie movies in general. I mean, that single location is very suffocating, and just having it all framed within the viewfinder of that handheld camera makes it even more so. Yeah, um, the the camera work can be nauseating at times, but that's a hallmark of the genre. It is a hallmark of the genre, and I think for this movie, like you just go along with it. Because it's so good. It's so uh, well-paced. And shout-outs to whatever that last creature was. Oh, yeah. Uh, In quarantine, I'll just say it's Doug Jones. Mm. I don't know who they had in the Spanish picture, but... um, But it's it's freaky-looking. It's very freaky. Uh, And they made uh, two sequels after that, and a a Wreck 4 is coming out uh, this coming year. I, I don't know the name of it. So, uh, you know, Spanish audiences are getting these with the regularity that we get uh, Paranormal Activity sequels. Yeah, but Wreck was really good. So, um, definitely looking forward to the next one. Fantastic. Yeah. 
right. Uh, well, onward to number nine, then. We're moving right along. Uh, my number nine is uh, Adam Wingard's You're Next, which I t- hyped up a little bit on the summer uh, movie episode. Uh, I still feel pretty strongly about it. I haven't had a chance to see it again, but it is coming out on Blu-ray uh, in January. So I'm looking forward to getting my hands on it and you know, taking another mm-hmm. run-through or two. But I, I re- what I really like about this movie is um, that it subverts the final girl stereotypes really well. Uh, it's really nice to see a final girl that has her shit together from the beginning, uh, where, I, where I never second-guess the decisions that she's making. You know, there, there's other characters do that don't go in there stuff that you usually bring into horror films. But uh, the main girl played by Sharni Vinson is a uh, she was raised on a survivalist commune. So when shit goes down, she immediately responds uh, mm. as aggressively as the slashers. So it's it's really, really a fascinating and fun thing to watch as uh, she is hunting them just as much as they're hunting her. Wasn't this movie shelved for a couple of years? It was. It was filmed in 2011, shown at some uh, some film festivals. Got you know generated a little bit of buzz, and then Lions and Lionsgate just bought the rights to it this year. So yeah, it's uh, it was one that sat around for a little while. I'm not sure why. I think, uh, and I and I I almost wonder if they didn't really promote this one as much as they could have. Um, I I know I was really down on it from the trailers. I did not want to see it from the trailers. But also because, uh, unfortunately, they were advertising it at the same time as the uh, very abysmal-looking The Purge uh, was also presenting a home invasion horror story. Mm. Although, you know, I, I would say this is a vastly superior uh, film. Yeah, I, I remember being at a theater, and there was a commercial for The Purge, and then your next right after it. And the audience started laughing. Well, and but I, I do want to say, in this movie's defense, um, one of the reasons I became cynical about—I mean, I love home invasion horror stories. Um, I have I have some home invasion experience too, which I won't go into here. There's, there's other forums for that, but uh, I, I think I think that's a hallmark. That's that's a very big staple of the hor- of the slasher genre in particular. Um, but movies like The Strangers really soured me to that genre for a while because mm. a lot of strangers imitators have come out of which purge is another uh where we just pretty much have silent masked killers that are constantly just doing peekaboo scares and wandering around and peering out behind corners and then being gone whenever the protagonists turn away whereas in this movie i appreciate that when the slashers are on screen they are very likely going to kill someone or themselves be killed by our badass uh, heroine all right so I, I think it moves right along, and I, I just really enjoyed it. It also reminds me of one of my favorite um, Joe Lansdale short stories, An Incident on and Off a Mountain Road, which also featured a uh, survivalist female lead up against a slasher killer. Uh, both both are exceptional stories, and I really, I really um, encourage you just to give this one a chance. So you think there was any inspiration? Uh, possibly, but, you know, it's... I, I, I don't know. Uh, I haven't seen any interviews from Adam Wingard where he talks about anything where he, <clears throat> he's read or anything. I, I do know that it's drawn inspiration from a lot of places, but this one is set in a house, whereas Incident on and off a mountain road is, well, literally set on the outskirts of a mountain road running through the forest. All right, man. So I recommend both. Go check them out. Uh, definitely. I haven't, I have seen neither seen nor read either, so definitely checking those out. I'm a fan of the... Home invasion kind of fiction, 
myself, just the fiction. I definitely think you'll enjoy this one. I mean, it's... I, I, I joked that Skyfall was Home Alone for adults, but this one even more so. I mean, our our heroine is not just, you know, bluntly attacking, but setting traps for the killers along the way. The the trailer came off as very tongue-in-cheek to me. Is the movie itself that way? Oh, yeah. There's, there's quite a bit of tongue-in-cheekness to it, but... You know, when it's time to get down to the uh, the bloody brass tacks, it does just that. All right. Um, well, coming in at number nine for me is uh, a Korean horror picture, mm-hmm. and it's called The Host. Ah. Uh, um, this movie did make kind of a bit of a, uh, a splash when it came out a few years ago. They were calling it the Korean Jaws. The Korean Jaws. I wouldn't go so far as to say that. Jaws is on a higher level. Uh as far as, you know, big monsters go. Um, but the host is pretty darn good. Uh, it concerns, like, this giant tadpole creature that pops out of uh, nowhere. Well, it, you find out that it is grown accidentally by uh, American chemicals that have spilled out into the water supply. And then there's a going uh, strange going on with, you know, a guy who's tried to commit suicide and he's been swallowed up. His remains been digested. And... The movie follows around this really quirky family as they all band together to rescue uh, one of its members and a little boy who are sort of trapped underneath um, the monster's lair. Presumably being saved for later. Presumably, yeah, because they're, they're amongst like a giant pile of bones. And this movie really balances... It's kind of like uh, what Casey's talking about you're next. It, it balances like kind of a humorous take in a way it's a very strange film but with like some really gruesome horror uh i remember the the first scene where the tadpole creature emerges and goes on a rampage in broad daylight um it's pretty freaky it just starts gobbling up people and uh there's like an american guy and you just see or or is it like a heavyset guy and he gets swallowed up and the way you see like the mandibles working I mean, it's nothing exactly new. There was that movie Deep Rising from the 90s. I don't know if anybody remembers that. <laughs> this is like a much better Deep Rising. Um, and part of the what makes this movie really work so well is that you get to know the family so well, and you really care about how they're going to save the girl. And the uh, the chemistry between them is perfect. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the family members, uh, she is a, a champion archer. So that comes into play. But she's on the decline lately. She hasn't been able to hit with the consistency she used to. Of course, for drama's sake. Yes. Uh, and, uh, I, yeah, I don't really want to spoil too much about it, but the monster scares are unique in that this would be normally, like, very sci-fi channel sort of fare. I mean, it's a CG creature, and it doesn't look, you know, too much better than Sharktopus. <laughs> compared to it, maybe, maybe a little bit better, but it, it's the fact that the way it's the way everything's framed, and the way it's yes. paced, that you buy into it, and that this is like a theatrical release instead of you know sci-fi movie of the week. Yeah. Um, well, and, and a lot of that comes down to the strength of the family drama. Yeah, absolutely, and you totally buy into them because uh, the, well, I think like the the patriarch of the family. Sort of has like a little snack bar he owns, you know. It's, it's nothing spectacular. They're not they're not doing too well financially. He's kind of a bum. Yeah. 
really mo- quite a f- quite a few members of the families are sort of bumming around. Yeah. And it goes into some heartbreaking territory later on too. Oh yeah. Um, because you do, like I said, you get so attached to the characters. The monster um, almost becomes secondary to it. I mean, it's what initiates all of the action. But had uh, had there not been that dynamic, this wouldn't have been pretty much anything to, to remember. So absolutely track down the host, if you can. Also, you know, in the grand tradition of Godzilla... Um, this movie is sort of based on a true event. Uh, back in er, back in 2000, a U.S. military scientist ordered his subordinates to dump formaldehyde into Korea's Han River hmm. uh, by the gallon, and it became a quite a huge political scandal in 2005. Uh, there have been no you know mutant creatures popping up yet, but uh, so you know definitely a, another movie that's conscious of um, the environment in much the way that a lot of the early horror, giant monster movies were. Yeah, totally. Uh, going on to number eight, then. My number eight is uh, is two movies, uh, but the second more so than the first. And this is my entry for found footage horror. Uh, it's the VHS series. Uh, VHS 1, VHS 2. If you're, gonna, if you're only going to watch one, try VHS 2. Um, this is here because... I think it's a. I think it's a really strong argument for horror as a short form. Hmm. Um, I I don't think that necessarily. And I I feel weird saying this when we're doing a countdown of great horror movies, and we can both we both said we could argue that there are more you know there are twenty or more that we would have put on our list if we'd had the space. But I don't feel like every horror idea that comes along can sustain a full length feature or a full length novel. I think there are definitely there are definitely you know many many that do it successfully, but I think there's also a lot of little ideas that you can sacrifice and make into a make into a you know a 30 minute feature or a 45 minute film or a 15 minute segment in a larger anthology. Uh, and you know we've we've both bemoaned in the past the death of the anthology feature. Hmm. And I I think that this is a strong comeback and also a strong entry in found footage. Um, not every segment in VHS one worked for me, but there are a couple, uh, particularly the opening segment with the vampire, uh, which is which I'm already saying too much by revealing. Hello, uh, I haven't seen but, it yet. That really play out pretty well, but VHS two um, is the most successful entry so far, because VHS two the problem with, the problem with VHS one is that some is that it's still that not every entry works. They're still trying to work out the kinks, but also uh, it suffers from every every one of the segments having to have a, a scene, you know, having to have scenes where characters are blatantly carrying cameras around. And, you know, as with most of these, after a while, you start wondering why they're still carrying the camera you know, through, through these horrific instances. Whereas VHS 2 treats this uh, in very interesting ways and organically ties the camera's presence into something. Uh, a man gets a cybernetic eye implant and starts seeing ghosts and we just see through his right eye. Or a, uh, a biker wears a helmet cam as he records his bike runs, presumably to upload them to YouTube or whatever, because, you know, those are popular things now, and uh, gets bitten by a zombie in the woods, and we watch his transformation into a zombie, and his eventual attack on other people in a very George Romero-esque mm. um, instances, you know, and so we get a zombie's eye, we get a zombie eye's view of the, of the carnage and havoc, and we don't have to question why the camera's on, because it's just attached to his helmet he's wearing. Um... 
also there's a really traumatic uh, alien abduction sequence um and just a, there's just a lot of really great recommendable things in this series and uh the director of uh the raid which both of us listed as our favorite action movie of the last 14 years uh turns in a really strong segment in the middle of VHS2 about a about a heaven's gate-esque religious cult um in Indonesia, that ends up being a lot more than expected and is shot impeccably. I can't wait to watch it. So I, I definitely recommend it. I, I didn't think I was going to do it, especially... Um, and I hit the midway point of VHS, VHS-1, and I was like, I don't know if this is for me or not. But no, it really is. It really it really delivers, and I it's a franchise that I kind of hope gets a little bit of sequelitis. If, uh, if we have to have a found footage horror series that keeps going and going, it's nice to see... A, a film or films that allow multiple directors and writers to come together and all contribute something. Uh, if I have any complaint, I don't necessarily care for the uh, the interstitial segments that go in between the films themselves, but they work well enough, so I can't complain. Yeah, uh, as far as I know, uh, neither of those pictures uh, had any kind of wide release, wide theatrical release. Yeah, I'm, like, I'm not aware of it either. Studios just keep balking at the idea of anthology horror maybe it'll change with trick-or-treat too so for the uh, i i think wasn't it already announced as a direct-to-video <laughs> so, oh it already was i think so oh, so well, i i don't that. i don't anticipate them ever really taking it seriously again unfortunately okay but you know what can you do what can you do moving along i guess we can do that uh i have another korean picture at number eight and that's Park Chan-wook's Vampire, I don't know, Vampire Epic Thirst, or Family Epic. Um, when it, uh, Thirst came out a few years ago, and it concerns a priest in Korea who does who performs an experiment on himself by going to uh, Africa, where he's infected with uh, a certain virus in hopes of finding a cure, sort of like using himself as a human guinea pig. And before you know it, he's infected with this virus, and he has to have a blood transfusion. And it just so happens that blood is tainted with vampire blood. We don't know where that blood came from, necessarily. Is and it we important? don't need to know. We don't need to know. That's part of, you know, the beauty of great horror. Yes. Not everything's explained. The right things aren't explained, I should say that. And he goes, and the, the priest eventually finds himself transforming into a vampire. He's... You know, all the classic signs are there. He's, except for crosses maybe, but he has an aversion to sunlight and a thirst for blood. Right. Yes, I said it. Um, and all <laughs> the while, like, he, uh, he gets in with a family in Korea um, and becomes sort of what? He, he plays like Mahjong with them on the weekends and becomes involved with uh, a young adopted girl. Well, I guess she's in her, what, early 20s. Yeah. She's married. She married into the family. And she works for them as almost an indentured servant. And they sort of... Uh, she starts, starts to find out that the priest is a supernatural being. And, and momentarily, this movie sort of deceives us into thinking we're about to see another vampire romance. It does, yeah. Uh, much like you know the super popular Twilight series, which mm-hmm. uh, isn't hard at all. That's like a vampire soap opera. It just uses monsters in it. You know, it's its own little weird thing. It has its fans. Um, but 
thirst, uh, it initiates this romance with one of the creepiest sex scenes I've ever seen. It's intentionally, oh, it's, it's intentionally unsettling. And it's like this intro- introduction, like it's perverting our hero, our protagonist, the vampire, and this woman. Introduced- Who prior to this has been a priest. Yeah. And uh, the woman, well, I don't want to spoil too much about the story, but there's more <laughs> vampirism involved. And there's some absolutely gut-wrenching kill scenes in the movie, too. Because this is Park Chan-wook, the man who brought us the Vengeance trilogy. He's a master at uncomfortable violence, I'll say that. Or just, I don't want to use the term visceral too often, but it, it certainly is. This is like grating flesh kind of violence and bloodletting. Like, if you're a vampire fan, you love vampire horror, absolutely. This is, uh, I think, one of the best of the last, you know, ten years. This is why it's on the list. It's my personal favorite vampire movie uh, uh, since 2000. And part, you know, I want to say Park Chan Wook is, and this and and everything else I've seen by him is really just astounding at crafting these thrillers that sort of give you even feelings of I, I hate to call it this, but existential angst. Like he, his the the imagery he puts up will hit you in the pit of your soul. It's yes, it will. Um, yeah. and, and you know, I couldn't. I, I really wanted to uh, talk about some of his other movies in the action or horror categories, and I couldn't. I couldn't do it because they don't really fit, other than this one. Mm-hmm. But uh, this one's very strong, and if and also has a very unforgettable use of um, the rising sun staple of vampirism. Oh, I I won't go into it, but this movie has some brilliant non-dialogue scenes, just done with images and great editing. Uh, very Hitchcockian. Um, Park Chan-wook frequently in the movie references uh, David Cronenberg. There's like a scene where um, our hero's fingernails are falling off, and it's just like the fly. Mm-hmm. And even in um, Old Boy, there was a scene where uh, Odesu is yanking out some guy's teeth, and he drops it on a keyboard. That's pretty much duplicated from the fly also. In a different way, but there were teeth on a keyboard. Um, he's and it, it's really nice too to see a movie where the um, the eternal romance of of the vampire is definitely shown to be not all that it's cracked up to be. No, it any sort of romantic pretenses that people think about vampires or that certain characters in the movie would think about are all just washed away. Like these people are monsters. Yes. And oh, it's demonstrated beautifully. Absolutely, go check out uh, Thirst if you haven't. All right. Um, well, I'm going to move on to something uh, not as artful as a Sean Wook Park mm-hmm. movie. Uh, in fact, I'm going into pure sleaze territory with my Ooh. number seven, which is Piranha 3D. <laughs> uh, Piranha 3D <laughs> is maybe the sleaziest movie of the last 14 years, and it's gleefully sleazy. It is pure trash cinema, it's exploitation cinema, and it loves itself for it. And I love it for it. I mean, this is a movie that is... I mean, the se- they called the sequel Piranha 3 Double D, which should let you know right away what the prerogative of this one is. One of the main characters is like a porn director. And there's multiple porn stars in the cast, and uh, God, uh, Jerry O'Connell plays the sleaziest character. Yeah. Or he's like the Girls Gone Wild guy. Yeah, and he's and he is uh, he is a believable piece of trash. <laughs> but... 
you know, it's so it this celebrates the uh, the TNA aspects clearly, but the reason it's on my list above all else is it is a bloodbath. I mean, there there is one horrific sequence when the piranhas go whole hog on a bunch of a bunch of MTV style spring breakers, and there's I would say there's hundreds of them in the water, and they they get ripped to shreds in glorious fashion. With makeup and blood splatter everywhere. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, there's one point some girl gets her hair caught in the, uh, the propeller of a speedboat oh, and it rips her scalp clean off. I mean, that's, that's the kind of, um, the kind of hand that uh, director Ale- Alejandre Aja, the uh, French new wave horror director who made movies like High Tension and The Hills Have Eyes remake, brings to this. And he, I mean, this is the splatter punkiest movie that on my list for sure i think it's the uh, goriest movie since dead alive yeah it's it's disgusting and it wants to be and i and i for one thank it for being it. it's it's pure z-grade fair and it's a blast yeah um i especially love christopher lloyd (laughs) playing of course a scientist and uh jaws veteran (laughs) richard dreyfus taken out very early in the film uh, oh yeah, um, even the poster is a parody of uh, Jaws, isn't it? Yes, but you know that, that's fitting considering that the original Joe Dante movie was just, uh, I mean, it was itself a, a cheap attempt by Roger Corman to cash in on the success of Jaws. Mm-hmm. And James Cameron's first ever directorial effort was like, I think he said like three weeks working on piranha 2 and he was fired from it and he's like it was like the sleaziest thing i've ever worked on. i mean and, and everything you know the sleaze factor is still here too just even with the production i mean this movie shamelessly goes for the 3d uh gimmick which was even hotter at the time then than it was now than I, it is now i think it's an even i think it's uh because it knows it's so sleazy i think it's more of a parody yes of sleaze yeah yeah i I mean, you're you're never gonna forget Jerry O'Connell's CGI penis being regurgitated at you if you're wearing 3D glasses, and then being eaten again by another piranha. That's not a spoiler, people. That's a warning. <laughs> this is the kind of movie you sign up for. But you know, what? if you if you're a gorehound, you will not regret it. Yeah, it's the gorehound's chocolate delight. Fish. <laughs> yeah, chocolate yeah. Oh man. Uh, yeah. Moving right along. It's funny. It's kind of like the action list. Casey's mentioned kind of a trashier horror movie. And I have a trashy horror movie for my oh, number nice. seven one. This is James Gunn's Slither. <laughs> this movie uh, is is an eight it's a love letter to eighties gore horror, especially movies like Night of the Creeps and From Beyond, Stuart yeah. Gordon movie. This it's a movie that's almost it's not as violent and bloody as Piranha. But it's more disgusting. Like this is some really gross stuff. Like I, I saw this in the theater, and everybody was like shrugging and turning their heads away and screaming and freaking out. Um, it, it, it has like the whole uh, very pulpy sci-fi thing where a, a meteorite crashes. There's a strange little parasite infects some little schlub in a small town. And before you know it, he's a monster, and he's capturing women, or he captures a woman, impregnates her. 
she gives birth to a tiny, to, I don't know, a million little slugs that infect people and turn them into zombies. So those zombies can combine themselves to the schlub, played by uh, Michael Rooker, if you're a fan of uh, Walking Dead or uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Um, <laughs> this is stuff like a woman, the woman who gets impregnated with the slugs. We see her in a barn, and she's been eating cows whole. And she's the size, she's shaped like a beach ball. And she's like the size of the barn almost. And she explodes with the slugs. Uh, like I said, this is not a spoiler, it's a warning. <laughs> for the kind of movie you're going to get into. Um, and at the heart of this, the schlub has sort of a, a tender little love story with his wife going on because she keeps seeing her husband morphing into this disgusting, gruesome, and I mean absolutely gruesome, slime, pus, blood and guts, ooze, monster, with fangs and tentacles. It's like an extra slimier version of... The thing from the John Carpenter movie, but it's bigger, and the way that the zombie people attach itself, attach themselves to it, is really gross. So you can feel it. It's like peeling off the nastiest piece of gum from your shoe. Oh, it, it's just, it just hits it right there. And the movie is not without a sense of humor. Um, it, uh, what's uh, what's his name? Uh, Firefly. Oh, God. oh um. Nathan Fillion? Nathan, Nathan Fillion. Nathan Fillion's kind of the town sheriff. He is the town sheriff. Uh, <laughs> he's our hero, and there's so much humor packed in to the movie. It's really a blast, uh, especially when there's certain scenes where you think a monster may or may not have been uh, defeated, and it just uh, teases you frequently, like a scene with a grenade in particular in a pool. I won't go into it too much further, but if you can stomach this picture... All right, if you love the movie From Beyond, absolutely go out and see Slither. And I want you I want you folks at home to mind that he's recommending this movie after he after he himself, Burton Cody, said that he would he that one of the movies he didn't think he could ever sit through again was From Beyond. <laughs> this is a movie <laughs> that is drawing its influence from From Beyond. Well, I had no idea <laughs> this is going to be like from beyond and lo and behold it was so <laughs> I, I haven't seen it yet but you're you're definitely making me want to invest a little time into it invest some time you'll probably only want to watch it once <laughs> maybe i don't know uh yeah for you gore sludge disgusting hounds this is the movie for you that's, that's this is the good filth yeah this is the good filth yeah so here we go all right onward and upward Okay, well, let's let's completely change <laughs> styles again. Then yeah. uh, I'm gonna talk about Frank Darabont's The Mist. Ooh. The Mist, which is um, unlike Children of the Corn, a good <laughs> not only a good Stephen King novella, but a good Stephen King adaptation, as Frank Darabont's Stephen King films tend to be. Mm -hmm. um, the Mist as a novella is the story is. In, you know, obviously involves the titular mist. It involves this dense fog full of interdimensional beings, uh, and was definitely a clear influence on the Silent Hill series, um, as was uh, Jacob's Ladder, which is another really good movie from the '90s. Oh yeah. But in the mist, we follow Thomas Jane and his son, 
who go out to a uh, grocery store to buy some supplies after a storm, and a humongous mist rolls in, and they're unable to leave because the mist is full of man-eating monsters and um, eldritch monstrosities and abominations. Uh, what, what the movie really shines is not so much in the monsters, because as, as with the host, I don't think that the CGI for the monsters is as good as it could have been. Mm. Uh, it doesn't hold up very well. Uh, it holds up a little better. Uh, Darabont recommends you watch this movie in black and white, which is an option on the DVD. That's what he intended all along, right? It was, but uh, the studio said no, so he had to <laughs> colorize it. Um, but it, it holds up really well in black and white, so if you have the DVD or the Blu-ray, give that a shot. It looks... The, the, the creatures look a little better, and the movie itself, you know, n- nothing's lost. I feel like a little bit of... A little bit's added, in fact. But what, where this movie really succeeds is in the paranoia and in the interactions of, the, of all the different characters and personalities trapped in the store. Um, because really, the, the highlights of Stephen King fiction tend to be in the interactions of the human characters. And, you know, and then the monsters show up. We get uh, Marcia Gay Harden as Mrs. Carmody, uh, who is this fanatically religious woman <laughs> who initially seems okay, but gradually starts to convince other people in the store that this is the end of days and they're being punished by God and that the, the, you know that this is the rapture and they should get rid of the sinners and it so it beca- it becomes a confrontation between Thomas Jane and Mrs. Carmody and it plays out really well. Um, notable in this movie too is that it has a tremendously downer ending. Well, I haven't seen it yet, so. So it's. Uh, I'm just saying, there's there's no happy ending ahead, and some pe- and some people say that this is that that the ending was so depressing for them that they could never venture back in the movie. I I am I for one am really glad that they went in the depressing direction. Hmm. It so, plays out really well. Uh, it sounds like the. It sounds like you took the the diner scene from The Birds and made that into a full length movie. Yes. Yes, and you and you do get some really cool shots later on of of uh, some of the other creatures. But yeah, it's it's very much the diner scene in the birds just, you know, arranged into 90 minutes of of uh, different sorts of monsters, things that look a little more threatening than packs of seagulls. Claustrophobic king is always good king to me. That's right. King king where friction is put between the characters just because of their proximity to one another in a stressful situation, which hey, that's an understandable thing that in any disaster can become horrific. Mhm. All right. Well, uh, at number six, I have an adaptation of an infamous 80s novel. Um, it's from Mary Heron in 2000. It's called American Psycho. Um, I first, was hoping you'd put this on your list. <laughs> at first, I was like, ah, I don't know, because it's like a straight-up satire, the killings are kind of, aren't they kind of incidental? No, this is a horror movie. It's a horror movie of the human spirit, you know, or of the of masculinity because Barry Heron is very much making a comment on that and sort of the alpha male uh, culture, especially that found itself in uh, 1980s Wall Street. And, 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 the sh- and, and the shallow yuppie culture of the 80s. Yeah, so, I mean, Brett Easton Ellis was commenting on that himself, but um, if if you read the novel and see the film, you'll notice the biggest change is that the excruciatingly painful, bloody, disgusting murders, most of those are absent in the movie. And 
this movie went through kind of an odd little genesis. Like Stuart Gordon was going to make it at one point. David Cronenberg was going to make it with Brad Pitt. I, I kind of wish that movie had been made, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think Mary Heron does a, a, a you know a commendable job, a great job. Uh, a large in part is due to the casting of Christian Bale in the role. He is perfect. He just kind of jumps out of the pages of the novel for me. Um, he's a 1980s yuppie, and in his downtime, he's either he's returning videotapes, working out, and killing people. Uh, usually, women is what he targets because you know he's a scumbag, <laughs> and and he, has a sociopathic vanity. It's uh, maybe the truest depiction of that aspect of psycho of a uh, psychopathy that I've ever seen on film. Oh yeah, um, he only recognizes himself through products he buys, products he wears, uh, the TV shows or movies and music he listens to. Like in the novel, there's the, there's whole chapters where he talks about nothing but like Huey Lewis in the news, and it incorporates it really well into the movie, into the murders where he just starts spouting off like just drivel about like uh, sports by uh, Huey Lewis or, or Hip to Be Square. <laughs> He he reads it off like Casey Kasem explaining the album's meteoric rise to the top of the charts. It's like a pre-prepared statement. Yeah, then he then he mur- kills somebody right after he does it, or he does it with Whitney Houston, and for I mean, some yeah, and uh, Genesis or uh, Phil Collins. Bale's Patrick Bateman is the kind of guy that literally looks at himself in the mirror whenever he has sex. Yeah, he starts flexing and going, "Look at that guy." That's how much of a gruesome narcissist he is. And as the movie goes on, we don't really know if his narcissism has created this persona, if he's really killing these women, or if... You know, he's an incredibly unreliable narrator. <laughs> incredibly, yeah. So in the novel, you know, I agree with this too. A lot of people will tell you that it does seem like he's really going around killing people left and right. In the movie, it's a bit more ambiguous. And the, the the murder sequences themselves, um, I think they work well. That they're done almost all completely off screen, um, and then there's sort of that absolutely not bananas one where he drops a chainsaw down a few flights of stairs and it impales a woman. <laughs> it's pretty pretty insane. This movie has also got one of my favorite scenes of the last 14 years, which is uh, goes right back to his socio- sociopathy and his vanity and his um, obsession with consumer culture, where he and a few other members of the boardroom that he's in are comparing their business cards. Oh, yeah, that that's right out of the novel, too. Just it, uh, one of the best scenes. It's fantastic. The way he just starts, he like starts biting on his knuckles when there's these very minute... And insignificant differences between his, he and his friend's business cards. And there's such great, like, sound design, too. Like, you hear a little bit of rumbling when mm-hmm. Patrick sees his rival and doppelganger, uh, Paul Owen's business card. And it just ticks him off to no end. And they're just, he's pissed off about fonts and, like, off white colorations. The tasteful thickness of it. Oh my <laughs> god. It even has a watermark. <laughs> It's an incredibly quotable film, too. It's also a film that features a uh, self-narrating psychopath, and that narration never annoys me the way that Dexter sometimes does. Dexter's used to be great. Um, I mean, well, on and off great. I'll just say that. When Dexter started 
just explaining what's going on. Then it got a little boring. I think that I think the difference for this and Dexter's narration to me is that there's a little more subtlety with Bateman, um, where Dexter will always go, I'm empty because I'm a serial killer, because I'm a psychopath. Whereas we just see Bateman's emptiness presented through the through the other things he's thinking about, but he never really reflects on what a person he is. Yeah, and Bale's ability to sort of, just, when he just starts sneering at things that disgust him, anything that doesn't have to do with him, practically, yeah. how great he is. Um, so it's as much the horror of uh, modernized America as it is just a, a serial killer narrative. And still pertinent now, even though it's about the 80s. Yeah, and it, it has a wonderful look, too. It looks like it was shot in the 80s. Like, great... Uh, I love the sets in the movie. They're very minimalist. Just white backgrounds. And his uh, sort of uh, postmodern apartment he has. Mm-hmm. And it, it goes well with blood spatter. I'll say that. So, anyways... Let's talk about another movie that looks like it was shot in the 80s, then. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about Let the Right One In. Ooh. Which... I'll tell you, what really draw, draws me in to Let the Right One In, which, if you don't know, is a Swedish vampire movie, uh, also remade as Let Me In in America, which I think is one of the better remakes we've had. Mm. Um, another movie I'd recommend. I'd recommend it right alongside it. They're slightly different. Uh, you know, if one takes place in New Mexico, for example. <laughs> the other one takes place in Sweden. Um, and they each do different scenes slightly better than the other, and I'll get to that a little bit later in this. But what I really liked about this movie is that it's it's really pushed and pitched and made to feel like it's going to be a love story between this sort of murder obsessed and he's never killed anybody but like you know he's the kind of kid that looks at like true crime websites with with the fascination you know he's he loves saying like, squeal like a pig yes and and like fantasizing about making somebody bleed mm. you know he very like, very much he he wants to like, he wants to be a budding sociopath, and we're not sure whether or not he has it in him, but we, we suspect definitely that he does. He's the kind of bullied kid that you worry will someday go nuts on someone. Mm. Um, and he does, kind of, in this movie. But what really works here is that he meets, um, to what all appearances is, is a young girl, who reveals pretty quickly to him that she is a vampire, and that she lives in his apartment building, and they, they have this budding relationship, but the budding relationship is also under the watchful eye of her assistant, who is an older man, in both versions, that we gradually come to understand, and I don't know if it's ever really, it's, I don't think it's ever outright said, but you understand that what the main kid in this movie, Oscar, is doing to get close to the vampire girl, like, that guy's already lived that life. Mm. He's already been in her. He's already been in Oscar's position where they had a ro- where they had an apparent romance, and he was an assistant, and he would go out and hunt for prey for her, and put and and, and drain them of blood, and bring her meals. You know, he murders for her so that she doesn't have to go out. What I, so that I guess what I find fascinating about this is that it's it's pitched as a romance movie, like a vampire romance movie in, a, in an odd way. And, it, and on one hand, we're sort of rooting for this precocious love between a boy and his vampire girl. But, and you can, and you can read it that way and it's still perfectly fine. I mean, they're, they're, they're learning the Morse code for love so They can tap through walls at each other. And 
things like that. But what this movie really is about to me, and I and the deeper the deeper reading of it, is that it's a movie that shows us how how someone like Dracula would draw in someone like Renfield. It's it's a movie about how a vampire deceives someone who you know has the propensity to be mentally ill and unbalanced and uh, sociopathic into his thrall or into her thrall to get them to do things for them um, under the auspices of of having a uh, normal as or as normal as possible loving relationship but eventually you're going to get old and she's going to leave you behind yeah it's it's sweet but at the same time there's the tragic outcome you know that's going to happen if it plays out the way it's supposed to and plays out the way it already has yeah with other characters um uh, the Swedish version has a fantastic sequence involving a swimming pool, mm-hmm. and the remake "Let Me In" has this has added a new scene that's really good, in which the assistant attacks somebody in a moving car, and the car crashes, and we get to witness the car crash from the inside, and it plays out really beautifully. I I, I, I thought that was a really astounding sequence, and I'm going to give credit where that's due for the remake. All right, then. Um, I, I particularly love the scene where uh, Oscar's testing out the theory of can a vampire let himself in to a room or, or a house? Mm-hmm. And the vampire girl walks in, and she starts bleeding from all of her pores. It's really disturbing. Uh, it's kind of a... It's just an interesting way to, to show that, oh, yeah, vampires, they have to abide by those rules. There's they also a... Qu- there's also an, an, an unnerving quick shot in the Swedish version uh, where he peeps at her as she's in a state of undress and her genitals are sewn up. Yeah. Now, I don't, you know, I don't really know what the gender is intended to be in the movie version, but I'm told that in the novel it's implied that uh, the vampire's backstory was that at one time uh, she was a boy. And had her penis cut off by this pedophilic murderer, and had it sewn up. Mm. So th- that takes it into a darker territory. The movie never really goes there. We just see that shot, and we're to understand they're never going to have that kind of relationship, even if Oscar desires it. Yeah, that's. Uh, I'm glad the movie leaves that out. I, I am too. I think there. I think there's a lot more restraint there, uh, and you know, and it's it's even more ambiguous. Yeah, and you know, in horror and movies, sometimes all you do need is just that one glimpse. Yes, and it'll oh, tell I, you everything you need to know, just I enough often, to know. Yeah, I often advocate that. I prefer horror that sort of starts in the middle and just drops us into things, and you don't have to explain the great darker parts because the unknowable and what our imaginations can fill in is far better than any exposition you can drop. Master that, and you've mastered horror. That's right. Um, yeah, I I say third. I mean, uh. This and Thirst are, uh, I think they're the best vampire movies since Interview with a Vampire. Mm-hmm. I think that's a classic, too. Um, so it kind of reminds me of uh, Kirsten Dunst's performance. An Interview with a Vampire is brilliant for a well, little me, girl. Well, since you brought that up, I'm going to throw in two of my quick honorable mentions here. Um, I'm going to mention Shadow of the Vampire, uh-huh. which is from 2000 and stars uh, Willem Dafoe playing the vampire from Nosferatu. And uh, we get to see the filming of it as John Malkovich plays F.W. Murnau, 
who discovered an actual vampire while while on while filming and scout, location scouting. And so Defoe plays the actual Orlock, who is just being filmed and uh, more than anything, just really wants to have a shot at the leading lady and is given and, and is predatorily given her at the end of the shoot. So it's practically film. a documentary. <laughs> it's practically a documentary. Yeah, this is a possible outcome of it. Yeah. And I, so uh, both Malkovich and Defoe are great as usual. Uh, another movie I wanted to praise in the vein, uh, pun intended, of Interview with the Vampire is that the director of Interview with the Vampire, Neil Marshall, made a new vampire movie this year uh, titled Byzantium. All right. Which uh, plays with a lot of the similar themes from that movie. Uh, sort of the the sad, eternal vampire love theme. The vampire bureaucracy. And all of the, and all sort of all of the politics that make them more ineffectual than you'd think, and some uh, genuinely beautiful uh, scenes regarding uh, really messed up mother daughter relationships. So I, I think it's definitely a praiseworthy movie that I that people might want to seek out if they enjoyed Interview with a Vampire. Not based on an Anne Rice book. Uh, it's actually based on a recent vampire play from England. Hmm. But uh, a strong contender and uh, another movie that sort of takes the isolation and eternal uh, loneliness of the vampire and moves it into a new and interesting direction. Well shot, too. Fantastic. Neil Marshall is a man of quality. I, I recommend The Butcher Boy if you haven't. And uh, everyone, everyone's heard of The Crying Game. Yeah, everyone. everyone's heard of the ending of The Crying Game. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Gene Siskel. <laughs> <laughs> infamously uh, spoiled the movie on the show but they were a big popular syndicated show we're just we're, we're getting there we're getting there that's right yeah sorry we've spoiled everything for all five of you yeah um moving along though uh i guess my number five um this is gonna be a, it's the beginning of a very wildly popular series mm. uh sadly it kept getting worse and worse but the first two were pretty good, and that's Saw. All right. Uh, from James Wan. It's one of these... It was a, a horror movie that kind of came out of nowhere. It ins- it's mostly known now because it inspired... Or a lot of people say, like, the Splat Pack. James Wan's part of that with AHA and uh, Eli Roth mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Rob Zombie. But Saw was... And, and, and it's also included with the torture porn or with the title of torture porn. I don't know if that's necessarily true with this first installment, at least. I mean, as they went on, they got more and more uh, gruesome and uh, sadistic. And sort of ridiculous. Oh, and completely ridiculous, of course. Uh, But Saw is about uh, a serial killer who captures people and puts them in bizarre death traps where they have to make extremely painful, physically painful decisions (laughs) to get themselves out of them. Like one guy's dropped into a bunch of razor wire... In a scene, not as good, but just like uh, Suspiria. Mm-hmm. I mean, the razor wire scene in Suspiria is kind of a masterpiece of gore, if you ask me. Or just horror. Uh, it is Danny Glover is a cop who's after him. And the movie has Carrie Ewells and another man trapped in this bathroom with a guy who looks like he's committed suicide. Lying in the middle of the floor. And uh, they're both shackled apart from each other by the foot 
with uh, handcuffs, and they both have rusty hacksaws. And so you kind of see where the the movie, you know, your brain figures into it, and this is what really works the movie so well. It's like you know that the saws aren't strong enough to cut through the cuffs, but they're mm-hmm. strong enough to cut through something else. And we're just going to have to wait 90 minutes to get there painfully. And the movie kind of cuts back and forth. It jumps back in time here and there. It's it's very well-told story, I think. I mean, there's the clear music video-style editing going on. I, I think James Wan has like a background in that, and that's prevalent in all of his work. Yes. Uh, but... To, to see them get from point A and for them the characters to come to the horrific realization they're going to have to amputate themselves is mm. just uh, beautiful in a, in a way that only like really gory, gritty horror can do. And this movie does offer a wonderful twist ending. It's kind of cheesy in a way and a, a bit of a, a whodunit procedural sort of thing, but not enough it, it, to, to make the movie like a totally cold approach and when saw came out it was definitely a breath of fresh air for horror because at the time there were a bunch of uh, derivative uh japanese or movies derivative of like some of the movies that were coming out in japan even though the ring the ring and the grudge had blown up here yeah the ring and the grudge had blown up so we needed a, a movie to get back to sort of like the gorier roots of horror but here we had an original original concept and uh with jigsaw and his puppet assistant Billy that does all the creepy voiceovers. Yeah. Um, we we have probably one of the first and maybe only iconic slasher characters of the last 14 years. Um yeah, uh, Jigsaw is now yeah, they throw him up there with Freddy and Jason and Leatherface. Yeah. I, ca- I can't think Myers. of a, yeah, I can't think of another from this pa- previous decade that's up there with him. Like oh. I think I think some people throw Captain Spaulding in a little bit, but I don't necessarily feel like that's as. Nah, good. I I, no, I mean there's a, there's two movies with him, and Spaulding was part of a family, anyways. Yeah, and I don't know, but I mean, the, yeah, I'll give you this first movie, and I, I think I think Juan deserves to be on the list somewhere, even if I don't always approve of what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of Insidious or Sinister. Um, uh, me neither. So. Um, <laughs> But, but I mean, he's he's definitely the voice that Hollywood continues to allow to make horror movies, original I mean, ones, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think what was it this year alone? He put out Insidious Two and The Conjuring. Mm-hmm. Um, that I know that one is, in spite of the fact that he's made a lot of horror movies, he sort of made it known that he's not the biggest fan of doing horror. It's just the movies that they'll let him do. So he's hoping to break away with that by doing Fast and the Furious Seven. Uh, which he is at the helm of now. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he took over from uh, Justin Lin. Yeah, I uh, guess I guess Hollywood was like, get us an Asian director. I mean, Saw owes a lot to Seven. Seven's a much better movie. Um, it owes a lot to Argento's work, not just Suspiria, but to like opera sure. and uh, Phenomena. So it, those but movies it, were the protoplasm for Saw. Saw's not as good, but yeah, check out those others too. As the progenitor of uh, the you know, so-called torture porn genre, mm-hmm. I, I definitely think this one's worth a look if you if you're if you're one of the few horror fans that have not seen this yet somehow. Yeah, so it it, it had to have a place on the list for me. This is but, probably the biggest money maker on either of our lists. Yeah, I mean the, the series just kept going and going till they made Saw 3D, and I hopefully no more. 
Although if I, if I have any problem with the franchise, and I've always kind of joked about this, um, <laughs> it's that, and it's not really much of a spoiler to say, that pretty early in the series, Jigsaw dies of cancer. Yeah. And, and yet, we're led to believe for the next seven films, or eight, I don't know how many it there are like now. like seven more movies or something absurd, yeah. That, that Jigsaw has planned out... <laughs> these traps to set all these people in for years to come and has done voice recordings (laughs) to (laughs) let them know why he selected them and what the trap is. It's completely silly. He is a a mastermind that might be even bigger than any of Christopher Nolan's Batman villains. Yeah. Um, But but hey, here here it works. Yeah. And uh, Shawnee Smith had a bit of like a resurgence in her career. Oh, Shawnee Smith of the Blob. Of the Blob, yeah. James Wan cast her in this movie because of the Blob, because he's a huge fan of that one. And I think his name was on sort of the Rolodex of people to possibly make another Blob movie, but for whatever reason, that has not come to pass. I don't think it's necessary. But moving along. Yeah. All right, then. Well, I'm going to jump into uh, the Spanish horror film, then, with my number four pick, The Orphanage. The Orphanage is often incorrectly considered a uh, Guillermo del Toro film. It's actually directed by J.A. Bayona, who is a friend of del Toro's, who del Toro offered to produce so that he could get double the budget. Mm. Um, It's called El Orfanato in Spanish. But The Orphanage is a really, really good movie that doesn't delve into uh, cheap scares. There's a couple, and those are the weakest points of the movie. But really... It's a very well-told ghost story, and the story of a mother's grief at the apparent disappearance of her son, and her abiding belief that he is somewhere in this humo- this large mansion they built, uh, which ended up, which you know we we learned was the orphanage that the mother was in when she was a child, and how she wants to open reopen it for uh, spe- to be an orphanage for spe- or like a group home for special needs children. Uh, to give back to the to the people who were unloved and unwanted, but her son keeps telling her that he's he's experiencing all of these things with his imaginary friends, and ha- there's some rather creepy scenes of the child interacting with his imaginary friends, where we just sort of see it from mom's perspective, so we only ever get half the conversation. There's no scene of like the ghost version of somebody jumping out and we're like I'm right here, like uh, in some of the James Wan ghost films we were talking about. Yeah. Um, it plays a very creepy slow pace and uh, gradually her child disappears and he disappears in a moment where she is so stressed out about trying to reopen this house that she sort of sends him away Um, and she feels deep regret about it when he goes missing Uh, I know that I said that the mist had a downer ending but this movie (laughs) this movie exceeds the mist's downerness in probably every way and it's a, a genuinely sad ending, but also somewhat hopeful. <laughs> hmm. uh, but it's... I highly recommend it. There is a really fantastic sequence that's foreshadowed early in the film um, about the uh, knock-knock game. Sort of like red light, green light, where someone will turn their back and knock a couple times, then turn around. And gradually, the uh, the ghosts inhabiting the house appear... 
and only approach whenever she's turned around and playing the game on their terms because she believes that playing the game on going on their scavenger hunt for all these mysterious items that keep appearing that she'll find her son. And uh, there's a lot of great sequences involving that, but that sequence in particular is pretty chilling. Mm -hmm. Uh, Strong performances, strong direction. Definitely one to see if you're a fan of the, uh, the old, dark, haunted house movie. All right. Well... Uh, number four, I have uh, a silly movie, um, and this is Edgar Wright's Shaun of the Dead. Oh, nice. Oh, Very yeah. nice. Um, Shaun of the Dead, it's the most loving parody of George A. Romero's zombies that you'll ever find, mm-hmm. and the most well-made one, too. Yeah. Um, so it has the, well, when I think most of the world was introduced to the brilliant comedic duo of Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Yes. They play roommates, best buddies. One's not doing so well in life. The other one is really not doing so well. He's kind of a freeloader, and that's the Nick Frost character. Mm-hmm. And they sort of they find themselves just <laughs> submerged into a zombie scenario and how they have to, you know, gather a few loved ones and just survive and make it to a, a bar to use as their stronghold. It's absolutely entertaining. Um, it's full of just some incredible slapstick humor, physical humor that you really don't see too often because so much of humor, at least in the States for me, is like kind of debauched uh, humor or like kind of Will Ferrell style, um, which I'm, you know, typically not the biggest fan of, but, you know, sometimes it works. But I much prefer what went into uh, Shaun of the Dead. And Shaun of the Dead definitely delivers with uh, some gore here and there and blood, so it doesn't skimp on that. No. And it lets you know that there are stakes to this. Anybody can die at any moment, mm-hmm. as Joe Bob Briggs would say. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a you know very it's a very comedic movie. Uh, very very funny and concise slacker humor, but also I don't know it's it's strangely not judgmental about it. Mm. Um. Because, I mean, well, it may be a little judgmental of uh, the Nick Frost character, and deservedly so. Yeah. Uh, he is a he is a louse on his friend, Simon Pegg, but at the same time, they still care about each other very deeply. And that's the, that's really been the core of all of uh, Edgar Wright's films with those two. And all of them, are, you know, deserve recognition in hmm. these kind of lists. But Shaun of the Dead in particular... Uh, I, I really enjoy how it plays with a lot of the zombie conventions. Um, it does so almost as gleefully as Scream does for slashers, where they deconstruct a lot of the uh, zombie tropes and they do it well. <laughs> it has a, a wonderful use of the uh, the Queen song. Oh, don't, don't stop, stop me now. Me now. <laughs> when they're bashing in a, a zombie with pole cues. To the beat. Yeah. Uh, just... Uh, I also really enjoy. Um, it's kind of a who's who of British actors. Mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy uh, Bill Nighy as Sean's uh, stepdad, who can never quite tell him he loves him. And <laughs> yeah, there's the nice little family play together, and uh, Sean's relationship to his mom. It's very sweet, actually. It is, and I, I enjoy this movie too because it is a comedy, but it never forgets that. It never, it never lets the comedy necessarily get in the way of a good tragedy. Mm-hmm. Like there are definitely some truly sad moments to be had. 
Yeah, well, uh, like the great zombie movies, like Dawn of the Dead, mm-hmm. um, it has a band of survivors for whom you start to care about. Yeah. Yeah. I would I would rank this among Return of the Living Dead as a zombie comedy, and I would not do that lightly. Yeah, I, yeah. For me, like I, I almost included the movie Zombie Land on this list. Zombie Land is the American Shaun of the Dead. It's the more rock and roll type zombie comedy. But um, I, I don't I don't feel as strongly about that one as I do Shaun of the Dead. I don't either. I, yeah. I I think I think Zombieland has a lot of the gleeful fun with the genre, but it lacks the human core of Shaun of the Dead, which keeps it interested interesting and keeps me invested in it. Zombieland is like a really entertaining and shallow video game. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's really entertaining, but yes, it doesn't have the meat of Shaun of the Dead. So, Zombieland is Zombieland is more for the guy that wears the zombie killer T-shirt everywhere he goes. Keep yes. calm and kill zombies. Yeah. Um, I also want to say that there's just some excellent examples of filmmaking for, from Edgar Wright and Shaun of the Dead. I really enjoy um, some of the repetition he uses. He uses a lot of repetition. A lot of a lot of jokes are foreshadowed early on. Um, for example, I find it really very funny that the movie sort of satirizes how zombie-like most of us are in our everyday lives. I mean, the, the opening credit sequence is just people going about their business and listening to listening to iPods and, you know, going grunting. to the grocery store. Yeah, and grunting. And then later in the movie, you know, early in the movie, we see Sean, you know, doing his daily routine where he walks to the corner store and doesn't pay attention to what's going on and just... You know, walks past people, and then we do it again when zombies are out, and Sean can't even be bothered to notice that the world around him has crumbled because he's just walking through this everyday, boring, zombie-like existence. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really quite real. Yeah, Edgar Wright has a wonderful sense of setup and payoff, which is like really crucial to screenwriting. And you can... and it, yeah, it's a, it's a hallmark of the Three Flavors Cornetto series, and. Yeah, that's a series you could, anybody can argue which one is his favorite, and mm-hmm. it would make perfect sense. So, moving on to the top three. Yeah. So, my my number three, um, I guess it's fair to say that since 2000, and probably a little earlier if you were in Japan, but this was the age of Japanese ghost stories. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, as a country, fully embraced them. Especially with Gore Verbinski's remake of The Ring, um, and the remix of the you know, the remix of The Grudge, and there was multiple ones of those. Mm-hmm. But neither none of those connected to me quite the way the work of Kiyoshi Kurosawa does. Um, if I if if you know this were a list of the '90s, I'd probably include his movie the, his movie Cure as my favorite. But since I could only do ones from 2000, I'm going to talk about 2001's Pulse. Uh, which is also known as Cairo, K-A-I-R-O, Cairo. Um, I'm not talking about the abysmal American remake, which completely misses the point. I didn't know there was an American remake. There was, and it's awful. Okay. Like, even from the trailer, you can see that they pulled nothing from the original. They just told, pulled the title. They pulled the title, and they pulled certain like like a single element and just ran wild. What I love about Pulse... And you know, as I mentioned with the orphanage and everything else, I'm a huge fan of the ghost story. Uh, the, the ghost story might be my favorite kind of horror fiction, if I'm really being honest with myself. The haunted house holds a certain appeal to me. And what Pulse does, which is very interesting for 2001, 
is that it's very prescient about how it thinks about how human communication is being ruined by our information culture. Um, that the ways that we enter, like we, we are, we have all these devices that keep us connected at all times, but we couldn't be more alone because the only way we, cho- we only way we choose to interact with one another is through those devices. We just sit at home on our computer rather than going out and interacting with people more often than not, or we can't even be bothered to answer a phone call. We can just send a text. And, I say that because that's the subtext of the movie. It's not explicitly what the movie's about. In fact, I mean, one of our major narrators is this know-nothing who who installs, like, his first Japanese equivalent of an AOL disc. I mean, this is 2001, so <laughs> the internet is still a new technology. But that's why I'm so impressed by uh, Kurosawa's ability to sort of see where things were going. Um, Kurosawa, as a director is a man who has a couple obsessions. Uh, the fir- his first obsession is um, dilapidated buildings in the first in the face of modernity. Uh, when like he he loves location scouting in Japan and finding buildings that are just falling apart or abandoned or doomed to doomed to uh, be condemned or demolished and filming at those locations. Like so he always finds legitimately creepy real places. Uh, to film in, which sort of adds to the tension of things. But also, he's very obsessed in both Cure and Pulse with the high suicide rate of Japan. Um, Because we learn that the ghosts in this movie... Well, first of all, this follows the basic conceit of uh, the religious side of a zombie movie. That hell, or the afterlife, or whatever it is, is full. There are no place for ghosts to go anymore. So there's just sort of a spillover. So the, so the recently dead tend to just come back and inhabit whatever place they were at. Um, but more more terrifyingly, this sort of involves a viral video in a time before viral video in which a website appears to people and prompts them, do you want to see a ghost? And it shows images of people sitting in their homes, like or sitting in their specifically in their computer rooms, just looking morose and... And gradually shows this video of a person with a black plastic trash bag over their head that just creeps very slowly, and they slowly start to pull it off. And most, and, and our, our narrator until very late in the movie keeps ignoring this video. Like he keep, like he keeps freaking it out, and he keeps unplugging it. But we're to understand that other people have been watching this video because gradually. Japan seems to empty out, and different areas are covered in this... Uh, different doors we see are covered in red tape by the people who've watched the video. And uh, a sign is usually put up on those doors that calls it the Forbidden Room. Hmm. Uh, and if you enter the Forbidden Rooms, you are um, sort of approached by a ghost uh, who, of whoever was in that place. Uh, because the video seems to compulsively inspire those who watch it to commit suicide... And then haunt the place where, the, and then haunt the rooms that they lived, because, as the characters in sort of an obtuse way that is very Japanese filmmaking, sort they sort of explain the philosophy to us that all of them feel alone in life, and so and they've and they're forlorn that they've died and seen that there's nothing beyond, because because the afterlife is full. There's nothing beyond. We die alone, and we haunt forever alone. So they're inspired to reach out to other people and sort of try to multiply their numbers. And it always fails. It never does anything because they can't bring 
they can't bring others along with them. Um, and some really unnerving imagery too of suicide, where, where whoever kills themselves tends to leave a black human stain in their shape on the floor or wall or wherever they were when they died. That sounds like a Hiroshima reference, though. Oh, it is. It yeah. is. It definitely. I mean, there's. It's the Hiroshima shadow, but it's mm. also just. It's, but, but I mean, I, I think that mo- most people who watch the video are also inspired by the recent suicide of whoever they lost. Mm. Like that. That continues to haunt each character, and they're they're they are irresistibly then drawn to just see see the video and get it over with. Uh, to the point where you know, I, I don't want to say too much, but this movie almost becomes an apocalyptic film. Like the, the, the proliferation of this video or viral media in general, again, in a time before that was a thing, uh, it's, it's reach is inescapable. Media is inescapable and our feelings of loneliness are inescapable. Um, but what I really want to praise about this movie beyond, I, I find that really appealing. Uh, I find the idea of, um, of ghosts as a symptom of loneliness really appealing i think that's i think that's a great subtext to bring to that kind of story and i think it's true of a lot of the great um ghost fiction and probably a lot of the reality of people believing they've seen ghosts but what really works for me in this is that there are no startle scares um every scare is slow and creeping and we usually see it well ahead of time uh, and that's a criticism of, you know, like the Grudge remakes, for example. I mean, the Grudge 2 trailer is so laughable in its depiction of it. Like, <laughs> jump scare, like, jump scare, jump scare. Jump scare, yeah, jump scare. Jump, like, there's always a hand coming out of your hair, and every time you lower a, you, every time you lower a newspaper, there's a little ghost boy at your knees howling like a cat for five seconds and disappearing, and these kind of things just keep happening over and over. Whereas, Pulse will let you see the ghost a mile away, or will let you build t- will just build tension in you as you just keep watching that internet video as it's running and that person is slowly pulling the trash bag off yeah. your off your head and building the tension in you of like what am i about to see you know it's there's a there's a really terrifying sequence um the first time one of the characters enters one of the forbidden rooms and sees the first ghost in the movie um and the ghost just walks pace that I'm told uh, happened because Kurosawa hired a ballerina to do the movements and it it looks like it's in slow motion her movements are so deliberate and just eerie (laughs) and it works astoundingly well but it is a movie devoid of jump scares that builds tension by just letting the tension happen Mm. and letting us experience these uh, odd moments alongside the narrators it's a little slow in parts and it's a little slow to start so that's why it's at number three but uh i think it's a strong ghost movie and i recommend it especially if you're already and already initiated in the uh the asian horror ghost story style all right then well uh number three i have i have a ghost movie also um and it's my guillermo de toro entry it's the mm-hmm. devil's backbone um it's hard to. It's kind of hard to categorize Devil's Backbone in a way, but it is absolutely one hundred percent a ghost story in a horror picture, um, and it, it kind of falls into the line of like the actual monsters are always the people, and it takes place during the Spanish Civil War inside of a, a boy's orphanage, and the place is haunted by a boy who was uh, who was killed 
We're not really explained how or why. We just know that the boy's died, and he's haunted the place. And and it, it goes into the line that uh, there's a ghost, and the ghost is appearing because he has something to say or something to show. There's something that wasn't completed correctly. That's why he's around. Um, and I think the movie opens up with the quote, uh, oh, what is it? It's like, a ghost is always just a moment trapped in time. He's always, the ghost is me. Yeah, the ghost is me. The ghost is always sort of stuck in its own little hell where it's just repeating, you know, its last moments over and over and over. And the ghost of this boy is particularly uh, unique. It's it's this ghoulish child with, uh, you know, the white face and eyes. The eyes sort of have this glow to them, otherworldly glow. And then there's like a wound open on its opened on its head and it's blood just continuously pouring out. But it's not just gushing out like gravity has an effect. It's like floating out of him. As if it's submerged in, in, in water that we can't see. Yeah, and it's, it's a only, really good effect. It's a brilliant design. I, I can't think of a single ghost I can compare it to ghost imagery. This movie is it's it's high on my list because of the way you get to know the boys and the, the schoolmasters, mm-hmm. and just sort of how you become involved with them and why they're there and their relationship to the boy. And there's a there's a bit of like a robbery caper, and you find out the find out who the film's true villain is later on and how he is connected to the dead child um and it's really startling it's very moving um it's kind of like i said it's it's very hard to categorize the picture it's a companion piece to uh pan's labyrinth but this is the one from the boy from a boy's perspective and movies like uh spirit of the beehive were clearly influential on it um, I think I think this one's a bit more easier to digest because you know it's a bit more of a conventional movie and that you know there's more dialogue, whereas a movie like Spirit of the Beehive kind of relies on you know just very slow images, and that's about a child's reaction to uh, seeing Frankenstein for the first time, juxtaposed against the Spanish Civil War. And hey, we've all had that moment. Yeah, we've all had that moment. Yeah. Um. So. The the gothic imagery is very strong. Del Toro has a very strong sense of what works in gothic gothic uh, visions, images, and he does it just triumphantly here. This is you know there's a reason why he says this and Pans are his best films, and I absolutely agree. Um, it's a masterpiece of just uh, the ghost genre. Um, of even being a war film. I would agree with that. Yeah. And being a film about, uh, you know, child experience. It's a, sort, of a, sort of a weird coming-of-age story. Yeah, uh, totally. Um, growing up, you know, and not all the things that you expected to be there are there when you're growing up. Um, and even uh, there's some painfully violent scenes in the movie, too. Um, and it's all the more troubling because some of it does deal with children. Yes. And that's hard, That's always hard to sit through. But it's not exploitative. 
and I applaud uh, Del Toro for doing that. It's uh, it's an incredibly moving film. It's very tender-hearted. You get you get the sense Del Toro is a tender-hearted guy, um, but not overly sentimental. Yeah, it's it's enough that makes you really really care about what's going on. So, one of the best horror pictures you know, since 2000, and just simply one of the best movies since 2000. My comments were kind of sparse on that one, because um, I'm going to keep that same theme rolling, because number, my number two was Pan's Labyrinth. Yay! Uh, yeah. Um, and I agree with everything you said. Uh, that, And it carries over into this film as well. The There's a definite amount of horror and a, and a tremendous... Uh, eye for monster design, mm-hmm. um, as seen here with uh, the fawn or you know Pan as in the title, and uh, the pale man, which is oh lord, which is an incredible design. Uh, both both of which are played by Doug Jones, the uh, the professional mime slash uh, creature movement actor who's getting his due through Del Toro largely, um, but you know it's this it's this horrible creature that puts its eyes in its hands and puts its hands over its eyes so they can see you and, and it eats kids eats kids and eats fairies mm. it's it's an incredibly unpleasant creature um but you know we get this we get this girl's i guess her magical possibly completely imagined uh adventure and her that there's two ways to see this film. Either a, all these magical things are happening, and she's legitimately having these fairy, t- these horrific fairy tale esque adventures, um, in which she may or may not be a princess of a fairy kingdom, or she is merely coping with the horror of of existing during wartime in in 1940s Spain. Um, and that's where we get the real monster of this movie, played by Sergi Lopez, uh, oh. who plays Captain Vidal. Uh, Captain Vidal, who is this miserable, awful fascist that uh, our, our our main character's mother has recently married, and he he could not care less about this child. He is a uh, he wants a son, and he'll do anything to have a son, and. Um, He's really a miserable excuse for a human being. He's he's cruel. He's butcherous. We we see him in the battlefield as he callously discards of anyone he comes across and takes no prisoners unless they can be thoroughly tortured. He's a really nasty dude. Like I, I would say, even more than um, even more than the Devil's Backbone, this movie tries to juxtapose the. The the monster horror with the horror of war. Yeah, well, in the Devil's Backbone, you don't really see any of the war at all. A little bit, you see like a public execution and an unexploded bomb sitting yeah. in the middle of the orphanage. Yeah. But in this movie, I mean, this is this is definitely a movie that's trying to weigh those two things, and you you completely sympathize with uh, Ophelia our main girl and her desire to escape in this fa- into these fantasy worlds, even if those fantasy worlds are somewhat terrifying as old fairy tales tend to be. Very European. <laughs> very European and very del Toro. And, and, you know, and in trying to think of, of films I've seen that might 
in some way have an influence on my own creative ventures, I, I felt like I would be shortchanging my list if Pan didn't have a high rank. Mm-hmm. So. I would have included it too, but I was like, eh, I think Casey's probably more the Pan's guy. Yeah. I, I love both of these films. I'm going to sympathize a little more with the monster side of things. Yeah. Um, I think a key difference is that with Devil's Backbone, you're pretty certain there really is a ghost walking around. Pan's, yeah. there's the ambiguity. But I, I still think in Pan's case as well that there's definitely monsters. Hmm. I think I think that's still true. I, I think that's I think Del Toro probably would have preferred it that way that there really are the monsters, like the little there's like a frog monster mm-hmm. under like, a, under a gnarled old tree that's yeah. the por- that's a portal to a magic world. Yeah, and the the labyrinth itself, which is a you know visually impressive thing. Oh, it's it's a be- beautiful film. It's a it's a triumph of set design and monster makeup, this movie, and also a triumph of writing. I I think that we get some great performances, and I think that we get we get a really well told story. And I w- I would say that's the same for Devil's Backbone, which again, like you said, I was gonna put on my list, but I suspected you would put it on yours. Yeah. We we talk enough that I can kind of get a gauge on, even yeah. though, even though we didn't talk about specifically the content of our list, I got a gauge on like, oh, I think you'll do that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, um. Moving along, though, my number two, um, it's two movies. I really couldn't pick one, and I feel like they go together so well. And that's uh, 28 Days Later, and it's sequel, 28 Weeks Later. 28 Days Later, as you know, is that was the movie that was ground zero for the zombie resurgence of the 2000s. Most definitely. Most definitely. Um, Danny Boyle says, like, oh, it's not a zombie film. It's like, it absolutely is a zombie film. It's infected people. They're not reanimated corpses. That that is a hallmark of being a zombie. But the 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 hallmarks of zombie horror are all there. They're all amplified and they're all brilliant. Yes. Um, This is one of the first digitally shot movies. um, Without being really without being the with a wide release digitally shot film. So I mean, if you watch it now, like on your DVD, you can recognize that. Oh, this looks kind of you know low res. In a way, like, you know, now they have, like, cameras like the Alexa that they shot Drive on, and it looks like film, pretty much. Um, but I, they shot this one on uh, digital out of necessity. And for one of the, one of brilliant scene that has our main character walking around London, and it's completely deserted. It's dead. He walks around, like, Piccadilly Square, and you, you see, like... Um, London Bridge, uh, I'm trying to name Buckingham Palace. Uh, I'm not. Sh- I'm not like a, an expert on uh, British uh, history and architecture. You're not an Anglophile. I'm not an Anglophile. I'm more of a Francophile. Okay. Um, but anyways, uh, and also the also the uh, the line that's probably the most famous movie, which is just uh, our our hero Cillian Murphy screaming hello. Yeah, it's wonderfully chilling. And then that introduces us to like. And by the way, a a a big a, a an opening sequence that I feel Walking Dead ripped completely. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Are you are you are you speaking of the one that with the, the monkey? No, I I mean the uh, the the main character waking up from a coma. Oh yeah, duh. 
Yeah. And finding that the world around him is changed and is abandoned and just that, that the infection happened around him while he wasn't even paying attention. Yeah, yeah, 28 Days Later came out, or I think before, like right before the first issue, I think of Walking Dead came out. It could be a case where something was in the water at the time, but... It, it could be, but I mean, I have to I have to look this up, but I do think 28 Days Later was early enough so maybe where um, Robert Kirkman had notoriety of it, maybe yeah. inspired by. Um, and at the least bit, the show, I think, imitated that opening sequence. Yes. I'm surprised to hear you say that this is all shot digitally, though, because uh, a big a big part of the movie I liked was that the cinematography seems so dark. Like it, Not like it dark in the gritty way, but just that there's like a shadow over everything that I could have sworn was celluloid. Yeah, I mean, they they may have shot certain scenes on film and edited it together, like the movie Collateral. That's mostly digital, but they did just one nightclub sequence on film just because of the way light would capture on it better. Gotcha. And I'm pretty sure this was all digital. So uh, they had to do the London sequence digitally out of necessity just because the setup is a lot quicker. With film, you have to take into account light more. I mean, light is always important for filming anything, but film is just a longer process. And uh, even David Lynch says he'll never shoot on film again, which depresses me. But the the light in this film is in, in, in particularly well done. Whoever was in charge of lighting it did a remarkable job. Oh, yeah. Um, and there's some great scares in this movie. Some really, like when they venture into a, a tunnel, the survivors. Yes. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of exactly like where 28 Days Later ends up with no, a bunch of either. soldiers in a man in a dilapidated mansion. It almost becomes Resident Evil, not not the film series. Yeah, not the film series. Um, but that does lead us into 28 Weeks Later, which is a, a bit more of an action-packed version of 28 Days Later. Uh, Weeks has some uh, questionable plotting. And character interactions, but I, I think as uh, with the horror and action set pieces, I think there's very few horror films that can match 28 Weeks Later. Like the scene with the hel- helicopter uh, blades, um, the scene where they firebomb London, it's all beautiful and spectacular and scary. Like with a bunch of... Uh, uh, there's a scene in 28 Weeks Later where... Uh, a bunch of survivors have gathered inside of a car and they're being chased down by NATO soldiers who are trying to, like, you know, nerve gas all of the infected people. And they got to get out of there in time. And it's a really just wonderfully spooky image of guys and gas masks. And uh, the music is great, too. It, uh, look up the, uh, the theme to 28 Days Later. It's just great. Oh, in a house in a heartbeat. Yeah, House and Heart. Yeah. Um, actually, Twenty Eight Weeks Later has my favorite sequence in the entire series, which is the opening. Oh yeah. Um, where the where the well, we assume he's the main character. He ends up being the father of the main characters, but um, he's forced to make a rash decision as their small house they've been banding together at is overrun, and he he ends up leaving his wife behind, which becomes a pretty haunting image. There's some questionable story choices with that later. Yeah, but but I I really enjoyed just the intensity of the moment and watching him have to make that awful choice and watching him run while that 
incredible theme song is playing, and you know, and, and and these rage the rage zombies as they come, they've come to be known. I mean, they're they're chasing him full force. Uh, he's running through a field. He's jumping on a boat as they're trying to leap into the water and swim at him. And it's it's pulse pounding. It's suspenseful. It had me on the edge of my seat, like literally. I was on sitting on the edge of my seat in the theater yeah. when I saw it. Well, so I, I guess we should talk about then the hang-up some people have with the series, which is that some people are very are purists for the Romero style and complain yeah. about the running zombie, which is often attributed to this movie unfairly because hey, Return of the Living Dead did it back in '85. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. That's all this. But still, I mean, this is the movie that sort of revolutionized that for most people. Mm-hmm. And that led to the Dawn of the Dead remake just a year later. Mm-hmm. And that had running reanimated corpses. And when you think about it, does running reanimated corpse stuff never made as much sense? Infected people, because, um, you know, you could kind of compare this to the Romero movie, The Crazies. Yes. That's about infected people. Because this is kind of like Ebola rabies. Yeah. Like I mean, it's it's transmitted by monkeys infected with rage, which is the silliest line of all. Rage virus. Yeah. Something something that even Shaun of the Dead makes fun of. You know, monkeys <laughs> infected with rage is utter bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not, not, not like the, that's just a newscaster, you know, proposing possible theories. <laughs> but um, but you know, but it's still it's it's a, yeah, it's a disease, and these these zombies are sort of vomiting blood everywhere, and even oh, the, even the blood will contaminate you. Yeah, and um, they're, they're, what's great is that there's a countdown. They tell you that how long it takes until you've been infected with the blood for you to become one of the infected. And so yeah. whenever, if there's ever a scene of somebody with you know the wrong kind of blood in them, you in turn you just start counting to yourself like, oh man, they've only got a few seconds. They got to act now. Oh man, oh man. There's just that anticipation that builds up, and it makes this for just you know these two movies to be just great wild rides. So yeah. they're they're not without their faults, but they just have such strong horror imagery and mm-hmm. thrilling set pieces. You can't ignore them, and I think they're absolutely essential for any horror fan. I would I would one hundred percent agree, and I yeah. would even venture to say that I think these are the best zombie movies of this era of filmmaking. Um. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. All right. Well, that's that's a strong number two. That's yeah. <laughs> it's hard to overcome. Yeah. Um. If you listen to this show, my number one shouldn't be a surprise. Um, I went with Trick or Treat. Uh, we we did an hour-long discussion of this one, so I really don't feel like I need to go into too much on it. Um, we also bemoaned earlier in this show that Hollywood doesn't really take anthology horror seriously anymore. This was a movie that was unfairly shelved, uh, but it is a movie that is not only strong in its writing, and its acting, but also in its filmmaking. Uh, it, in my summation, is almost a perfect movie. In fact, I have, I don't really have anything, I don't, I don't really see anything wrong with it. I'm at a loss for things to complain about with Trick or Treat because it, it, it's paced so well, it's well thought out, and it is the perfect distillation of the meaning and the spirit of Halloween in film form. It's the quintessential Halloween movie. Yeah, I mean it's it's become as traditional around my house to watch that as Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is in most houses in America come Christmas time. Um, in fact, I, I almost felt like I had to put this as my number one because out of everything on my list, I've probably rewatched Trick or Treat the most. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I really, I really enjoy this sort of return to the Tales from the Crypt style anthology horror of, um, of, I don't, it's, it's hard to say that people who behave badly get their comeuppance because even people who aren't behaving badly, but don't follow or believe the rules of Halloween are mistreated and tricked. But I mean, that in a way too is also the spirit of Halloween. It's not necessarily whether you're a bad or good person. <laughs> it's just that, you know, ghouls and ghosts can wander the world for one day a year. Um, and I really love the mascot character, Sam, who I feel I get, who I feel a little bit like Jigsaw is a character that given more time could enter the, uh, the, the horror icon list and may already have given the merchandise. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a definite cult film now. And I, I think more than any Halloween movie, like it's targeted at adults, but it beautifully captures like the anything goes feeling you get at Halloween. Yeah. It's loads of fun. And I and I really enjoy um, how successfully Doherty interweaves the four stories. There's not there's not sequences like in most anthology horrors where there's like an unrelated story that's connecting all these. All the stories do connect, and we see character, we see small character interactions, and sometimes I notice new things when I watch the movie again, of just little ways in which the characters interact, or someone else is in the background, or we see another, we see a part of someone else's story happening simultaneously with someone with it with it with the character we're observing right now um so it, i i just think it's i think it's really well played out i'm a little anxious that with the announcement of trick-or-treat 2 uh that doherty can make lightning strike twice but man am i ever hopeful me too man me too so and if you do want to hear more we do have a whole episode dedicated to that great movie that was our halloween episode it was too. our halloween yeah. Our only one we've recorded in the same room together so that's far. Right. But that's the kind of movie this is. It inspires that sort of feeling where we know if we get together, we have to do that movie. Yeah. All right, then. Um, <laughs> brings me to my number one, and it's the most unconventional horror movie on my whole list. Unconventional because you might not realize it is a horror movie at first. And it's David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Um, I just couldn't ignore it. It had to be my number one. Um, it's it's a movie that just affected me profoundly. Um, David Lynch is surprisingly, I think, I think he has directed more horror movies than he hasn't. Eraserhead, Blue Velvet, Firewalk with Me, and this trilogy of Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, and uh, most recently Inland Empire. Really, there's, he's the kind of director that even when he's not making horror, there's just there's still nightmarish, dreamlike sequences. Yeah, um, the interplay of the subconscious is so very important for Lynch. Um, I think everything he had been doing in his career up until this time, he did he just perfected with Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive, he he sculpts this beautiful and scary Hollywood gothic world that you get in and you explore around through all of these bizarre vignettes, you know. Some of them are kind of funny. Some of them are downright spooky. One involving a diner early on in the movie. And (laughs) there's even a sequence that's kind of something like out of a Tarantino picture. But it's even better than like pretty much everything, a lot of the stuff out of uh, Pulp Fiction. 
Hmm. I mean, I I would argue. I, I, mean, I can't I can't disagree because I haven't seen Mulholland Drive yet. It has some of the has one of the scariest scenes just because of how intensely creepy it is. Following a love scene, it it just it, the movie plays with sound and imagery that no other movie on this on my list has, and it plays around with it in a way that's very unnerving. Um, in there's a, a wonderfully bizarre sequence inside of uh, this music club, and uh, believe it or not, you know David Lynch has had. Uh, a scene in tons of his movies where somebody's always singing something, or at the very least lip-syncing, you know, or like in uh, Blue Velvet where uh, Dean Stockwell sings into a lamp. My favorite scene in any David Lynch thing. <laughs> oh, that's such a wonderful scene. There's something, I think, in this movie that tops it. So, really? In my opinion. In my opinion. Okay. Um, Mulholland Drive is a movie that's deceptively simple. You, you may think it's very complicated because... The first time you may watch this film, you might be scratching your head going, well, I just wasted my time. But Lynch he, has that effect on people. He does, but I mean, he's a polarizing director, but he absolutely does not. This movie, I think everything, most everything is explained. It's a movie about, you know, dreams and our subconscious and the way our waking lives influence them and the demons lurking around, you know, just in the that weird little corner of your subconscious and things that haunt you. Um, Naomi Watts is in it, and she's just brilliant in the in the role. And she almost plays two roles in one. And this is what ha- also happened in um, Lost Highway with the Bill Pullman character. And they sort of like change, you know, later on in the movie to a different character. Mm-hmm. But it but it all makes sense in the end, at least for me. And it's a, if you don't, if you don't understand the ending, go ask Bert. He'll explain it to you. I will explain it. To you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's the only, it's the movie on here I'll probably return to the most frequently. It is that it is that entertaining. It's it's a it's both a of us fit the same criteria into our number one there. Yeah, um, I always there's always something just out in this this bizarre little world Lynch created that you can discover. And some things are, are even more scary, like in a in a more deep way. There there is a there is I think at least one jump scare in the movie, and it's absolutely chilling. I'm not going to say when it is, you know, because that would completely ruin it. Right, but well, it, it's, this this is shooting to the top of my Netflix queue right now. You you choosing this as your number one? <laughs> like it's it's made me curious now. All right then. Um, I hope you don't like come back and go. Well, Bert's a damn liar. <laughs> Find out next year, folks. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's hard to because a good so much of the enjoyment of this movie is going in and discovering this world. And David Lynch said that movies like Sunset Boulevard were extremely influential because in that movie Billy Wilder created this wonderful, you know, Hollywood Gothic and that. And David Lynch takes that world to its sort of natural end in a more, is, is much more as, surreal fashion. Is it as horrifically suburban as a lot of his other stuff? No. Um, well, it, this is about Hollywood. Sure, but I mean, there, but I mean, there's suburban areas of Hollywood. There, I, I guess you could argue that because one of the main characters in the movie is a director, 
mm-hmm. who's having a very strange day. <laughs> you could argue about that with with everyone. And um, David Lynch, when he ran around with interviews for the movie, all he would say to describe it was, "It's a love story set within the city of dreams." <laughs> he said that on Jay Leno, and of course Jay didn't quite like get it. You know, I mean, of course who would? And that's so David Lynch. I mean. Like like I said, if you really do like this movie, check out Lost Highway. I think we're going to have a future episode where you just record as David Lynch for the entire hour. Uh, movies are ideas. You write all your ideas down and you make your movie. Ideas are everything. Movies are changing. People just watch them on their fucking phones. <laughs> <laughs> oh, David. See, I, I'm not bleeping that because that's him, not me. That's a quote, folks. <laughs> that is that is a quote. Look it up on YouTube. David Lynch iPhone. <laughs> and I absolutely agree with him. David Lynch is a guy who's so committed to, yeah, you know, the way a movie should be. It should be experienced beginning to end. That on the DVD for this movie, there are no chapter stops. Really? Yeah, if you try to skip to another chapter, it just takes it to, like, uh, the menu, I think. Wow. Or, yeah. Well, okay, so if you ever want to have a Mulholland Drive party, make sure that you queue make it up. Make sure to everybody the right is, and, and it's important, you know, it's like Seinfeld, you gotta watch it from the beginning, or else it just won't, you know, mean as much at the end, unless it's like, you know, your favorite episode. And if you, if you want to, if you want to show people just one scene, just have them, have them awkwardly sit beside you as you fast forward through an hour and 20 minutes of movie. Yeah. Um... It, 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 this is a movie you'll probably have to watch twice, probably. And I mean, the first time I watched it, I was like 17. I couldn't. It was like I didn't quite understand what had just happened. Do you think that's the same as like some pieces of literature where the first read through or the first view through, you're so invested in trying to see what's going to happen next that you're not really savoring what's being presented to you? Uh, absolutely, because there's so many wonderfully bizarre individual scenes scattered throughout the film um, that uh, you could probably lose sight of that easily. Gotcha. So so it's a matter of seeing the whole and knowing the whole to appreciate the parts. Yeah. And David, you know, people say he's insane, he doesn't understand, like, traditional movies. But, I mean, it's like a a Tarantino picture in that the movie is kind of out of order, especially (laughs) the last 20 minutes. Deliberately so. Deliberately so, but it still works as a, I think, a traditional screenplay, in that there is the setup and there is the payoff, of you know, what good you know good screenwriting what it presents. Like, you'll see certain things, certain images, because David works in images. He does not like putting things into words. As you know, even as he said, he's like, when he explains a movie, he said he just can't do it. It's, you just have to see the images. So certain. No, no, things, no. How, how did David Lynch say it, Bert? <laughs> it's like, well, I, I, I just can't put it into words. Uh, it, the movie's already out there. <laughs> he, yeah, it's something to that effect. And um, it's, a, it's a movie that just really grabbed my soul. So would, would, you, would you venture to also call this the best David Lynch movie? Yes. It's okay. The, it's the best David Lynch movie. Um, most people say Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet's probably his most straightforward out of his horror movies. This one was nominated for a few Oscars. So, so Blue Velvet is Lynch at his most accessible, if you can call it that. 
Yes, that and uh, Elephant Man are. Huh. All right then. So Mulholland, I'm, I'm I'm strapping myself in and preparing myself for this Mulholland Drive experience. Yeah, I mean, so if you do that. like this one, by all means, check out Lost Highway, which is uh, it had a lot of the early concepts. I think to get this sort of the I'll call it the Dreams and Hallucinations trilogy. A lot of the concepts in there he perfects in Mulholland Drive. And, and then hey, and, and Lost Highway, you get that really creepy sequence with Robert Blake, which is even creepier now, given what the man actually did. Yes, it is, and that—that's what uh, allegedly held back the DVD release of that movie for so long. And uh, there, there was Inland Empire, which is a three-hour low-res digital nightmare of a movie. And Oof. Better, I mean, but going back to yeah, saying speaking of nightmares, I don't think any other director working today can capture the feeling of the the mechanics of a dream. Because I, I feel like Mulholland Drive is as much about dreams as a movie like Inception is. Whereas Inception is a movie that, you know, kind of coddles you and along. This one gives you the images and you're left to interpret them. And it's beautiful and it's scary in only the way, like, you know, a dream can be. And you don't really know the way, like, your dream can play out. And he just nails it to, you know, to a T. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, that... Makes me excited to see this one. I think that's a. I think you've. I think you've argued your point pretty well here. All right then. It's a good contender for number one. So well, it, it's a movie you love it or hate it. So. And you and you clearly love it. Yes, clearly. <laughs> All right. Well, hey. Um. Do you have any honorable mentions this year? Um. You know. Or I wanted, this this decade and then some. I should say. This decade. I painfully left off. You know. Drag me to hell. Sam I Raimi's, was wondering about that. <laughs> as, as Sam Raimi's triumphant return to, you know, his his horror roots. Um, Can I tell you? I didn't include that on my list because I anticipated it would be on yours. <sighs> if this were top 21, Drag Me yes. to Hell would find itself on there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to mention the uh, two of the Rob Zombie movies. I didn't really care for Halloween, but uh, House of a Thousand Corpses... And Devil's Rejects, I both really enjoyed. More so Devil's Rejects. So Rob Zombie's kind of a polarizing guy as a filmmaker. So I, I like his style. I think he really understands like the grindhousiness, you know, of these '70s movies that he loves so much. And he's, you know, bringing it back. He's revived it in a way, but in his even sicker, you know, modern Rob Zombie sensibilities. I've always had a a kind of love-hate relationship with Zombie, where I don't... I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of his dialogue, and I wish that he would get some help on the writing end of things, but I definitely can't deny that he's a strong visual stylist. Yeah. So, yeah, I can see that. All right, then. Any honorable mentions from you, other than uh, the two vampire movies? Well, yeah, I, actually, I wanted to say about the vampire movies. Um, you know, you it's sort of become a meme... For people to say, back in my day, vampires burst into flames. They didn't sparkle, you know, referring, of course, to Twilight. Yeah. But, you know, I don't think that's fair. I, because I think in our day, vampires are still presented in really wonderful ways. I mean, we, we just mentioned four vampire movies yeah. on this one podcast. Five, if you count the fact that, you know, Let, Let the Right One has a remake. Um and there are several other pieces of vampire fiction that are just as traditional or just as innovative. 
um, that depict vampires as predatory forces. I think that people are sort of um, blinded by the runway success of Twilight, but I think that it's kind of their own fault if they keep saying things like that because they're they too are watching horror just as shallowly as a fan of Twilight that they're criticizing for it. Uh, because the great vampire fiction, man, it's out there. There's a lot of it lately. I'm shocked to say I'm not even the biggest vampire fan, and I found a lot to like mm-hmm. uh, in these in these last 14 years. So go ch- go check those out. Um, yeah, you know, by that by those I mean Byzantium, Thirst, Let the Right One In, Let Me In, uh, Shadow of the Vampire, and many many others. Uh, Kim Newman's Anno Dracula books, if you like the old school Victorian vampires. Oh, we're getting to the literature now. Of course, yeah, I always got to throw a shout out. Um, but otherwise, yeah, let, let me say I enjoyed. I'm gonna I'm gonna list Cabin in the Woods for a certain sequence. Um, and that sequence is when all hell breaks loose by the end with the elevators full of possibly every kind of nightmare creature you can think of. Just all in a huge um, orgy of monster violence. Uh, I think I think that's a really you know, hilarious and really well done scene. But I, I felt like the movie lingered a little too long on the like w- a movie that's so full of possibilities and and when we're shown so many possible monsters that could have attacked our main characters that to have spent seventy minutes on a zombie redneck family felt like a bit of a letdown. Hmm. So it it lingered a little too long on that for my taste. Um, in the same vein of uh, your next, I'm also gonna say Scream Four. Oddly enough, Scream 4, I think, does a really uh, great job of wrapping the series up. I really hope that they don't do any more, but I think that's a really strong place to end it. Uh, of particular importance is Emma Roberts' performance, shockingly. But she is uh, she's very, very good in this, particularly uh, during a certain scene near the end that I'm not going to spoil because it's pivotal to the plot. Okay. Well, there was uh, Bubba Hotep. Yes, based on a Joe Lansdale story, just as I mentioned with Incident on and off a mountain road. Mm-hmm. Uh, a nice return to form for Bruce Campbell and some some fun with a, uh, I don't know, even know what you'd call it. I mean, it's uh, it's a mummy. Soul. It's a mummy in cowboy boots that <laughs> sucks the souls through people's butts. Yeah, it's very Joe Lansdale. Um, it's strange and funny and redneck and a little bit. A, a Elvis impersonator, or is he? And his friend, uh, who may Black, or may not be JF. His, fr- his friend Black John F. Kennedy. You don't know if they're crazy or not. I think it's funnier if they are crazy, though. Yeah, but if they're not, that's still funny. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's in a, in a nursing home of all places. Uh, mm. Very fun. A movie that I'm shocked that neither of us listed, given the show we host. Um, Freddy versus Jason. Freddy vs. Jason is buckets of fun. Buckets of fun. And a movie that we are definitely going to dedicate a whole episode to. Yeah. Uh, I think this is as good a place as any to say that you and I are thinking about doing a Nightmare on Elm Street series retrospective at some point next year. Yeah, well, one of the best slasher franchises, in my opinion. One of our, one of our favorites. So yeah. we, we could both agree on it, and we've decided that that's definitely going to be something we shoot for. Yeah, so... Uh, we really appreciate holding your uh, attention for this long. You're still with us. Our longest episode ever, I'm guessing. Yeah, we had a lot to say about the old Horrorino. 
We're very passionate, and I. this was really a strong 14 years for horror. Don't let anybody say any different. I mean, my my bottom three were all from 2013. I mean, horror is still alive. There's a lot of good out there. You just got to dig deep more, a little more deeply than you used to. Yeah, it's not necessarily all coming to the theaters. Yeah, so Netflix is a wonderful, wonderful place to go. And I think mo- a good chunk of the movies we've talked about are on there. And if not there, then readily available on DVD. Yeah. I don't think any of these are out of print or anything. Nope, not to my knowledge. Well, with that said, I'm Bert and Cody. Hold on. Hold on. we oh, got to tell, oh. tell the folks what we're doing next week. What are we doing next week? You don't know? No, I don't know. Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, we're doing our first retrospective series on oh, one yeah. of your favorite, one of Bert's all-time <laughs> favorite franchises. Which is why I'm shocked he doesn't remember this. It's one of my favorite movies. Okay. Well, <laughs> Maybe well, not franchise, favorite movie. Well, then I want you guys to come and listen <laughs> as Bert's love and passion gradually turns to hate and turns into ash in his mouth. <laughs> because we're, we're doing RoboCop 1, 2, 3, and the remake. Oh, Lord. Maybe it's because I... Maybe I intentionally forgot... Bert's already experiencing the twelve stages of grief with this retrospective because he's already he's already started to plead and bargain with me to to have to do two and three as one episode rather than having to dedicate forty five minutes to an hour to each of them. But we'll see, we'll see. You know, you know, for the folks at home, you know. So we're we're, we're uh, ringing in the new year with RoboCop action. Yeah. You have been warned. <laughs> Well, the first one is a freaking masterpiece. (laughs) We'll get to it. So. We'll get to it. Anyway. Anyway. I'm Burton Cody. I'm Casey Mitchum. Stay bloody, my friends. Bye.